Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hey guys, the Value Perspective is taking a small summer break this week, but we have some good news in the meantime. Jake Taylor will be joining us for a second episode when we come back from our break on the 8th of August. For those of you who did not catch Jake the first time around, we're going to treat you to a replay of his original session this week. Enjoy. In today's episode, we have Jake Taylor. Jake is a value investor and the CEO of Farnham Street Investments. He is the host of various podcasts, including Five Good Questions, The High Cast, and Value After Hours, which he co-hosts with investors Tobias Carlyle and Bill Booster. In this show, he's very well known for his veggie segment, where he applies learnings from other professions and sciences into the world of investing. He's also the author of the novel, The Rebel Allocator. Jake, thank you very much for um, having being with us today at the Buy Perspective podcast on decision-making under uncertainty. Um, it's a pleasure to meet you. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me on, Juan. Um, maybe it would be a good idea if you could please um, walk us through a little bit of your background, um, what you've uh, done, how you ended up uh, where you are at the moment. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I took a bit of a circuitous route to get to where I am. Um, it's kind of one of those things where you can never tell the dots connecting, you know, looking forward, but they kind of make sense looking backwards. Uh, I, I got an undergrad degree in economics and right out of school, I got this opportunity to join an operator and training program, it's called, uh, in the energy industry. And it was basically like an electrical engineering degree crammed into an 18-month training program. Uh, and then after that, I was eligible to get a job working, running the power grid for the state of California, which I did for about 12 years. Um, oh. So, <clears throat> yeah, so that was really cool. Uh, and then after that, I, after working for a couple of years uh, at running the power grid, I had wanted to keep all my options open and I went back and got an MBA while I was working. Uh, and that first year uh, at UC Davis, I, I happened to win this lottery to go back to Omaha and have lunch and meet Mr. Mr. Buffett, uh, which is oh, wow. an absolutely just incredible yeah, stroke of luck. Uh, was that... Was that just you or like a group of students that uh, were allowed to go and visit him? Yeah, it was a group of students. He, he entertained. I don't know if he does it anymore, but for a long time, he would entertain students. Uh, and he would come and talk and then, uh, and then take everyone out to lunch uh, to, to have a steak dinner at, at Garat's, which is his, uh, favorite, <laughs> his favorite restaurant. Um, so after I, you know, I was obviously blown away by, by you know, hearing what Buffett had to say. And I, I started researching more about him and his investment style. And I, I came to realize that, oh, he just likes to get a bargain on things. And I realized that I 
have always been that way my whole life. I just didn't know that that was called value investing when it comes to the context of, you know, buying partial ownership of businesses. Uh, but that same idea of never wanting to pay retail and always getting a good deal just resonated with me right away. And that, that whole idea that you, you get that right away, that inoculation or not, uh, for me, I was inoculated. Yeah. Yeah, we know, we know that feeling in the team. <laughs> yeah. Kind of takes or it doesn't, right? Um, yeah. So then uh, the next step was my boss at the time at the energy place was, uh, he was on the fast track to being the CEO of the place. And, uh, you know, he was my, my mentor, but he left the company kind of suddenly to start his own Buffett partnership. He was a big fan of Buffett as well. And so mm. it was basically a hedge fund he was starting. And I said, well, mm. can I come sweep the floor for free and just learn, you know, <laughs> it's, as an intern? Uh, he's like, yeah, sure. So, you know, I started doing that and um, I got to the, my last year of school and uh, I thought, you know, what if I did an independent study with this kind of internship and sort of value investing as a class, which wasn't being offered. Uh, and I thought, yeah, I could kind of kill two birds with one stone. And, uh, you know, I ended up, my boss and I put together the course at Davis and, uh, you know, I, we taught it. And we, I had like, there were 15 of us total taking the class. It was mostly just my friends. Like we, they were looking for an easy, you know, grade. And uh, <laughs> yeah. we, I finished up and, and graduated. And, and then we got a message like that next year, like, hey, we heard good things about this class. Would you want to come back and teach it again? And we were like, well, okay, sure. We came back, we taught it again, and we had 30 students this time. And then the same thing yeah. happened the next year and it was 45. And then the year after that, it wow. was 60. And wow. uh, then we, we ran into some bureaucratic uh, red tape because the finance department didn't really like that we were teaching, you know, uh, you know not efficient markets. They didn't like that we were getting all the students. Uh, so they, they put up a bunch of roadblocks <laughs> kind of, and it was great. Like it, it was absolutely an amazing experience for me. Like I learned more than the students ever could having to, to teach it. Uh, and so I'm forever grateful for it, but, uh, it was a, it was a great way to, to really have to, to solidify your investment approach. So I, 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 at London business school, apparently, um, my, my wife did her MBA there and there is a value course who, which apparently is taught towards the end of the MBA. It's one of the electives, but to to be allowed into the class, it's it's very difficult. And apparently, I, I don't remember right now the name of the of the professor that uh, does the course, but he is a longstanding value manager, and he it, he demands a lot of work uh, in terms of hours during the course. It's very intensive, and he only allows into the class something like fifteen or twenty people, and the amount of credits that those students need to take together to be considered to be allowed into the course uh, are quite high and quite demanding. So not everyone can get in. And um, I learned that about like two years ago and I thought like, well, that's, that's pretty cool. It's one of the most um, suit electives in the whole course. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I think we weren't that demanding, which was why we were so popular. Uh, we were probably an easy. <laughs> <laughs> but we did try to. I mean, we followed when Buffett's asked been asked before, like what would he teach if he was going to teach a class on investing? And it's how to think about markets and how to value a business. And those are the two things that we set out to to do. Um, and we ended up having to 
we ended up having to teach a lot of accounting actually early on because you know they the the students understood t accounts and a bunch of things but they didn't really know what anything meant to to an actual business person like what's happening inside the business what does this number actually mean uh, so there was a lot of translation required uh, and sort of bringing in real life examples of like, well, what does depreciation really mean? Uh, it's not just like some yeah. number that shows up on, you know, in your, <laughs> on an income statement. And then how, okay. So after, after that, at some point, like you became an actual investor. That's right. So uh, my, my business partner, uh, my, the one I was interning with, we like working together so much that we started our own company, Farnham Street. Uh, investments and um, that's what we've been running ever since so and then how how you came about with uh, so you have your own podcast show which is uh, called five good questions and you will correct me if I'm wrong but the idea behind that is you are you read a lot you like reading a lot and you um, you try to reach out to the authors of different books that you have read and you ask five good questions so that's what's right the story behind that yeah, you know, I, I've always loved reading. And when I, there was a point there where I was listening to different authors, this was kind of before podcasts were as, as prevalent as they are now. Um, and I would hear somebody I really liked, and they'd just be talked over on the TV, right? Like they'd be doing some interview, and they, they were just about to get to the important thing they were going to say, and they get talked over by the, you know, some talking <laughs> head. And it would drive me nuts. And I thought, well, you know, I could just sit around and complain about it, or I can do something. Uh, and I always kind of wanted to encourage people to read more if I could. And I thought, you know, if I personalize the authors by giving them a platform to talk, um, maybe they'll, you know, more people will read more books. I'll get a chance to hear what they were going to say right before they were cut off. And, uh, and it's a really nice to, you know, know someone that whoever you meet, you have a potential to add some value to their life right away by doing an interview with them, right? I'm sure you found that so far with, uh, with yeah, what you guys absolutely. are doing here. Uh, yeah, so we've, you know, I, I started it, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Um, and it's been, it's kind of, it's a labor of love. There's not, it's not really a revenue thing. I just do it because I kind of feel like I'm doing a good service for the community. Um, but yeah, I, I keep it to five, hopefully good questions. Uh, because mm -hmm. if it was, if I left it up to myself, like I'd ask 200 questions and each interview would be 10 hours long and no one would want to listen to it. So, <laughs> so I, I put some constraints on myself. And then, and then you are also co-host of another podcast, uh, which is more about value, and it's more a little bit of a chat with uh, Tobias Carlyle and Brewster, which is called uh, Value After Hours. And so, what's what's a little bit the story behind that? Yeah, I've I've known Toby for probably a dozen years now, and in fact, he came and gave a talk at one of the classes that we were teaching at Davis um, many many years ago, and we've always stayed in touch and been good friends since. And uh, I've known Bill for a couple of years as well. When, and when Toby had the idea of like, hey, would you want to just kind of get on and have a do an hour a week just riffing and whatever's kind of topical news. And um, I was like, yes, of course, that's going to be so much fun. And honestly, like those two guys are some of the most uh, authentically good guys in the industry that, uh, that I've ever met. And it really is so much fun to just basically hang out with your friends and, you know, and I get to tell my wife that I'm working uh, <laughs> when it's not really, it doesn't feel like work. <laughs> it's, uh, I, well, I, I like it a lot. And, and then, and you also wrote a novel uh, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, That's right. Yeah, can you talk us a little so, bit about the novel, the story behind it? 
Sure. Uh, so it's called the Rebel Allocator. And uh, the idea behind it was really, I wanted to write something that would be an easy on-ramp for younger people to learn about investing, capitalism, capital allocation, and, and really more for my two sons, actually. Like I wanted to write something that maybe would be a good uh, way to convey information to them that wasn't just dad talking at them like they, they have to normally endure, right? So, um, mm-hmm. and really, I, I, I kept getting all these little nudges from the universe that I have to tell a story if I want it to resonate. And so I, I started researching, uh, like, well, who's good at telling stories? Like, well, maybe Hollywood. So I actually read a few books on like how to write screenplays. And I used that screenplay kind of mock-up as and framework to create the story of the book uh, that's inside the book. And so if, if it's, it's painfully obvious once you know, but like if, you, if you're familiar with the movie, The Karate Kid, uh, it's basically yeah. that. But if Mr. Miyagi was like Warren <laughs> Buffett, Okay. So that's that's okay. that's how the story evolved. Okay, okay. And then you have this very nice. Um, I don't know if it's a it's a well known anecdote uh, that comes along with your book. Uh, that would, would be great to hear from you. Yeah. So, so you, you mean, received a like, call from uh, someone very very relevant relevant in your life. Yes. Uh, so the the phone rings in my office and my assistant answers. And uh, she tells me that it's, it's Charlie Munger on the other line. And I, I'm like, that's not funny. Don't mess with me. Like, there's no way Charlie's <laughs> calling me, right? Uh, so I actually, uh, I, you know, I pick it up and sure enough, it's Charlie. And he, he wants to talk about my book. And I guess the story, whatever it was, resonated with him uh, in, a, in enough of a way that he wanted to just reach out and, and talk about it for a little bit. Uh, so I basically spent 25 minutes uh, bas- trying to not say anything stupid that made him want to hang up. Um, and, <laughs> but yeah, it was one of the most surreal experiences of my life because, you know, here's somebody who I've, you know, I've gone for, you know, multiple, for more than a decade to Omaha to hear him talk, traveled to the Daily Journal meetings to hear him. Basically, anytime he's saying anything in public, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm going to try to be in the audience. And there he is on the other, you know, just like you're talking to him, you know, on the phone. And uh, it's just, just an incredibly surreal experience. Have you had uh, the, the opportunity to, to uh, meet him before that, uh, that phone call? Maybe in one of the trips that you've made, you have made to Omaha? No, I mean, he's, there's too much security. There are too many people. Like, you can't even get within 150 feet of him without being tackled by a security guard. So, <laughs> believe me, I tried. <laughs> So how, 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 how did he got, uh, how, where did he got your number? Well, I, I sent him a copy of the book and I sent it to a lot of people who I, as an appreciation, because he's, he's a big factor in the book. Like the, a lot of the things that are intelligently conveyed in that book, I've borrowed from, you know, Warren and Charlie and others. So, you know, as a tip of the cap, I sent him a copy and, um, how, after that, he must have done some more research to, to track me down and, and find, you know, the phone number. And uh, I actually found out that he had been reading my quarterly letters that I was writing, which was also maybe okay. even a bigger stretch of the imagination than yeah. reading the book. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> he asked, he talked to me at the time, he said, um, you know, I, I, I see in your letters that you have been having a hard time finding good investment ideas. 
because that's what I was complaining a lot about in my letters in around that time period. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he said, uh-huh. don't feel bad about it. I, I'd be worried about you if you were finding too many good ideas right now. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty, okay. Pretty that's amazing. very. That's very. That's very nice. Yeah. That's a very. That's a very nice anecdote. Um, okay. So in the value of our podcast, your section is known as the veggie section. You clearly read a lot and very broad, and you try to apply learnings from branches different from finance and economics. Which branch have you found that helps helps to build up a toolkit to make better decisions as an investor or in life in general? Yeah, I, I would. I would kind of reframe the question to ask ourselves. What do we, how do we know that something is capital T true? How do we find the truth about anything? Uh, and there's, there's quite a bit, you know, the scientific method was developed uh, by Francis Bacon. And, you know, behind that is this idea of data collection. So we need to look for where can we find the deepest pools of data, right? And, and so, like, take something like the, the height of Mount Everest. You know, what is the height? If you were to ask Google, it would say it's 29,000 feet uh, or 29,029 feet. Well, that's true, but it's also not true because it is constantly changing the height based on the plate tectonics pushing up and the wind erosion scrubbing it off. And the time that we've been talking, the height of Everest has changed as a fact. Okay, so that's Mm -hmm. on one end of the spectrum. On the other (laughs) end of the spectrum, we have something like physics, which... You know, Aristotle had a version of physics that was updated and supplanted by Newton, which was then eventually updated by Einstein and relativity. And so, you know, that is a much slower degradation, but all facts have a half-life to them. And we have to be conscious of that. So when I try to draw my analogies in these, these veggie segments that I do, I, I have three primary buckets that I'm looking for. Uh, and, it, and it has to do with how big of an N is produced in in this particular domain. So number one is the the inorganic universe. And that's, you know, about 13.7 billion years old. That's a lot of interactions of matter and energy running into each other. Uh, You know, gravity, all of these things are, have a, there's a very, very large in involved. Um, The next bucket that I look at is biology. And, you know, that's roughly call it 3.7 billion years life on earth. Uh, that's also a lot of interactions of things eating other things, uh, you know, evolution playing out. Um, and then the last bucket is is human history, which, you know, the Sumerian cuneiform was, you know, roughly 5,000 years ago. So we have written history from then. But, you know, we probably have about 200,000 years worth of, of human history. And us humans are probably about 2 million years. Like we would by identify that if we saw someone from 2 million years ago, like, oh, that looks like a human um, and not something else. <laughs> um, so we have these very, very large data sets. And I think one of the things that's interesting about finance is that there is the illusion of large data sets, but I'm not so sure that it's always as solid as it looks. So let's take something like market yeah. prices. We could take every single little squiggle per second and have millions and millions of data points on pricing, right? However, the true data that we're looking for, the really big moves, according to Fidelity, I think there's only been 16 bear markets since 1926. So our real in often that we're kind of looking for is much, much smaller, which means we have much less predictive ability uh, and that we should probably be a lot more humble on uh, when we try to make 
financial analogies about things. We really just don't know. Like we, we can't say a whole lot. Uh, and I think we, we often forget that because we're surrounded by so many numbers. We feel like the data are so rich that we, we, can, we have more room to stand than we do. Uh, but compared to the inorganic universe, human history, and, and biology, we're not even close, right? And so we should probably be a lot more humble yeah. than we are. Yeah. So that leads uh, to my next question, which is we, some, some, some people in finance and in markets uh, have borrowed some tools uh, from psychologists or behavioral finance. Uh, and this is actually a question that we've, we, we asked Michael Mabuse when he was in the show and, and, and even Annie Duke. And it's like you, you come up with all of these tools like base rates and you try to make uh, people think in probabilities or even a, a simple concept like doing a pre-mortem or a post-mortem. And those in theory look quite easy and actually very logical to follow. But then somehow in practice, they become very difficult to implement and execute. Uh, even even base rates sometimes are very difficult to, to actually get. So how do you go around that? Because I've, I've heard you use uh, base rates in the past and, and, and you have mentioned some of these tools before. Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of these best practices, when you read about them, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, keeping an investment journal, doing a pre and a post-mortem, tracking and scoring your predictions and using some kind of scoring system like, like Briar scores, um, you know, using a checklist, seeking an outside view uh, and base rates. Yeah. And, and even, I think one of the most important things, like making a clear plan ahead of time before you're in the thick of the, the battle and, you know, what you're going to do if this happens, right? Um, yeah. All of those things are, or what, what Michael Malbison would call the man overboard moment, right? Like you should have a plan for when the man falls overboard, um, what, what we're going to do to get him back in the boat. Um, yeah. All of those things are, are incredibly simple, actually, when you, when you look at them on their own, but they are very hard to execute as, a, as kind of a package of best practices. Uh, and yeah. I think it's, it's because it just takes that extra work. Uh, you know, it's the same problem why you could have a gym membership, but you, you don't go as often as you should. Uh, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Like there's no, there's no secrets here, right? And yet it's hard. Like you're yeah. working against human behavior or you're working against the human tendency to, to take shortcuts. Um, I wasn't probably going to talk about this, but I, I, I guess I'll tell you about it. I, um, I've actually been working on a, a software package that will hopefully solve a lot of these problems in and incorporate a lot of these best practices into the architecture of the software uh, to make it much easier to, to stay on the course that you know that you're supposed to be doing. And I, I've been using it myself for a while now in beta, uh, kind of as the only user. And it's something I've been thinking about for years, and I finally put a team together last year to start building it for me. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited to see what it looks like as we get more features built into it. But I think it's going to be kind of a game changer as far as saving a ton of time and just making it easier and lowering that friction of doing the things that you know that you're supposed to be doing. And, and how would that work in practice? Is it like a, like a checklist type of thing or does it incorporate data so that you can check for certain, uh, certain um, base rates or or it gives you the, the guideline plan on how to best make a proper pre-mortem or then a post-mortem? 
Um, yeah, all of that. I mean, it's uh, the idea is really it's sort of a combination of a of an intelligent journal that's contextually um, updates itself along with uh, an investment checklist that's that's uh, you know adapts to your process, uh, and then all the little things that are kind of a pain like you know following up on that post mortem you know after you've closed the position yeah. you know you're supposed to do it yeah. right but you just a lot of times it's easy to skip it like no one's checking your work often right so you especially if you're yeah. you know an individual investor you, it's really easy to skip uh, but this yeah, has it built in so that you you do it uh and and hopefully you like learn something and update your mental models in such a way that what you're really trying to do is close that feedback loop that will create better intuition for the next round of evaluation. Okay. That sounds super interesting. Um, so one, one of the things that 2020 has taught us, well, it has, it has taught us a lot of different things, but uh, one of the things that the, 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 this year has taught the world is that we live in a very uncertain environment. Like no one was expecting what has happened in 2020 to happen on the 1st of January. And I think that you are also a good follower or you like uh, Jason Swig as a journalist in finance. And so I borrow uh, a quote that I think that he wrote on the 30th of September of 2008. And I'm just going to read it uh, to you. Because he said back then, investors hate uncertainty. Well, that's just tough. Uncertainty is all investors ever have gotten or ever will get. From the moment Burley and Sesame first began trading in Asian Mesopotamia to the last trade that will ever take place on planet Earth. So how do you deal yourself with uncertainty? How do you think about it? And how do you keep a long-term horizon in the midst of all the noise that is happening in an industry that is becoming every single day more short-term? Yeah, I think it's, it's very popular for value-oriented investors to say that risk is the permanent loss of capital, right? And everyone agrees yeah. to that. And we all say like, oh yeah, that makes sense. We all nod our heads. And I think that it's a little bit, unless you are running truly permanent capital, like Buffett has at Berkshire, or your own money potentially, and you can stomach a lot of quotational risk, then I think that that is true, that, that risk is the permanent loss of capital. However, I think one of the things that, and I certainly did not appreciate this enough when I started in this industry, uh, is that there, is, there are strategies that may or may not be appropriate for your client if you're managing money for them. And that you know, Buffett's lumpy 15% that takes a really wild ride to get there you are likely to knock off a, per, a significant percentage of your investors. And if that's true, then were you actually providing them a good service or not? And I would call into question if that's true. Um, you know, perhaps the little bit smoother 10% that gets more people, you know, more investors ferried to the other side of success and they come along with you may actually be a better service, even though, you know, the 15 versus 10% is obviously not as good. Uh, and I think, I don't think we think about that quite enough when we're, we're choosing our portfolios as professional investors. Um, so I, what, I think what, if you looked at the dollar weighted returns of a lot of professional funds, you would be shocked at actually how sad the results are and that 
you know, a lot of times most of the performance came on a small asset base. And then as money's come in, there's a lot of underperformance and then those guys leave and then they start to out to perform again. And if you, if you dollar weighted all of that, that journey, the, the average investor, the average dollar that they managed actually was not very successful, even though they could point to the whole fund saying it was, was successful. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, survival, survival, survivorship bias in the, yes, in the mix. For sure. You also recently talked about nuclear disasters and how a combination of small events, each with a low probability of happening uh, and being meaningless individually on aggregate cost, could cause a disaster. And you, you were making the point as well, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that we have nowadays very complex systems which happen to be very tied together where any small accident can have an outsized system. For me, when I was listening to that, uh, it brings into life the whole concept of understanding the independent probabilities, which I think uh, is one thing that people tend to exist and can happen. And so what's the best way to think about um, such a competent, especially when sometimes even aware of sort of connectedness in different systems, or sometimes it's not that obvious. How do you make better decisions? Yeah, uh, so th the book that I was drawing from was this book called Meltdown by Chris Clearfield and Andre Tilsik. Uh, and it, they're talking about the Three Mile Island disaster early on in the book. And it's amazing because it was just a simple plumbing problem. And there were a couple things that failed that were connected to each other and it led to a, a meltdown and a release of radioactive coolant into the river that ended up poison, you know, poisoning people. Um, but it wasn't like there was no giant hurricane. There was no, you know, no, no tsunami that caused it. It was just this little plumbing problems. And because they were connected, uh, it led to a cascade of, of failure. Now I, I think, on, it's interesting to imagine on like the x-axis complexity and, and how that increases. And I think we have to recognize that inherent in increased complexity means that we can't just think through all of the problems that can occur. That's, that's one of the hallmarks of complexity is that it doesn't yield to just purely thinking about it, right? There's, there are pieces moving that don't, we can't predict very well. And on the other, on the y-axis is the tightness of the coupling and how do mistakes or, or interactions even propagate throughout a system. And so the, the higher the complexity and the tighter the coupling puts us up in this quadrant where that's where the really big mistakes happen. Like that's where you get a nuclear meltdown. Uh, and, you know, the finance world is incredibly complex and incredibly tightly coupled. Uh, and, and really, our whole world is like that now. I mean, a just-in-time supply chain it greatly increases the, cup, the tightness of the coupling of the world. Um, you know, a lack of transparency will increase complexity. Uh, actually, kind of interestingly enough, higher trust creates tighter coupling because people stop doing their own calculations, right? Um, so if you just trust the system works, you don't actually go yeah. check the math behind to make sure that it actually is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, you know, not to be political, but like bailouts that were done in 2008, I think, uh, you know, they inevitably lead to the moral hazards that are, that create more implicit trust that future losses will be socialized, right? So kind of the disturbing side effect of those bailouts is that 
the, the message is you need to get bigger. You need to get more complex. You need to get tighter coupled if you want to create the situation where heads you win and tails everyone else loses. Uh, it's, 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 it's rather gross. Um, now with 2020, you know, I feel like COVID kind of called BS on a lot of our, of our tightness of coupling, you know, our just-in-time supply chains. It called BS on a lot of our complexity. Uh, and, you know, I feel like a lot of the things that we've been sweeping under the rug for, well, maybe all of human history, but uh, at least certainly in the last, <laughs> certainly in probably in our careers, um, has been called into question now. And is it, do we have our supply chains configured in the right way? Do we have our, our organizations configured in the right way for a, a, to have enough slack in the system to be able to absorb these external uh, shocks that can happen? Um, so in general, you know, if you think about living in a world with a high complexity, tight coupling, I think you really need to, again, like we were talking about with data sets, go back and be, be more humble about the findings that you have. Uh, and especially about the narratives that get written, right? Like everyone is, there's so much time and energy spent on trying to explain what just happened and explain what's about to happen, right? And we look for, we have all these things we're trying to measure to, to bring those two things together. And really, you know, there's so much complexity and so much coupling that you don't know exactly why something happened and you don't know exactly why something is going to happen. And I think we could all just take a little breather on trying to write the narratives for everything and, and, yeah. and, and just understand that we have to be a little bit more humble than that. So I, I guess, I guess to bring it back to the world of investing, that's where the whole concept of having a margin of safety comes into fruition. That's why it's important to um, incorporate margin for error in anything that you're trying to do because you like you're just saying things are so complex that you have just no idea what things are you going to miss exactly right that is the that's a really huge uh implication of a complex tightly coupled world is that you you should be seeking even more margin of safety with when there's that kind of uncertainty and that's very interesting and so one of the things that i've seen that you have written in the past and you've made the point of the importance of keeping track of your opportunity cost, which I think that somehow it gets lost many times when when you are doing your when you are you are you are investing, and 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 also you've brought the um, not the concept but the importance of writing down or being aware of or very true to yourself on the reasons why you are saying no to something. So, so I wanted to ask you, why is this so powerful? Or how, why have you found this so powerful to be? And what's the best way to implement it? Yeah, so I, you know, we, we all readily remember the, the big you know, Amazon IPO that you didn't buy. And the, you know, it was obvious that I should have bought Google. I use it all the time. Of course, that should have been a good investment, right? And we remember these very bright, shiny, large data points but we, we ignore all the close calls, the things that maybe you thought about buying, but you didn't buy, and that turned into a zero, right? So we're, we're not treating this in a very scientific way when we try to assess our opportunity costs. We just look at these little anecdotes that float around in our brains and go, oh man, I missed out on that big one. You know, if you're Buffett, I didn't buy Walmart in the 80s, even though it seemed like a layup, right? So I think we have to be a little bit more scientific and actually track what are the things that we rejected 
And, you know, and what does that, what did that mean? What I would call, we like to call it an anti-portfolio. So it's, it's all the things that I, I thought about and I rejected it. And like you alluded to, the real magic happens when you start to track why you rejected it right? What was the filter that was used to screen that out? And now you can start to see as, as you gather data on that, where are your filters helping or hurting you? Now, for me personally, I'm, I, I'm wired to be a little abhorrent to too much leverage on a, in a company. And I know that about myself, but I can't tell you for certain yet whether that helps me or hurts me. And I will eventually be able to tell you when I have a big enough data set of tracking my opportunity cost, whether that particular filter has been a hindrance or a help. Uh, but it's too early to tell for me. Uh, another possible place that this might be really helpful is, you know, Buffett famously has this, this tray on his desk that's called a too hard pile, right? And he puts things that are too hard to figure out. He throws them in that pile. Well, especially if you're starting out, how, I mean, it's very possible that everything goes into your too hard pile, right? Like you just, I don't know hardly anything about anything. Uh, what if you were tracking what the opportunity cost was of things that you were putting in your too hard pile and you saw that like, oh my God, there's all these returns in there that I've been rejecting. Maybe I need to like dig a little bit harder. Like maybe there's gold just a couple inches down yeah. under the dirt. If I was just put in a little bit more work, uh, maybe that would be the impetus to, to try a little bit harder, or maybe it turns out that it's not the case and that it was smart to reject those things in the too hard pile and maybe you're properly calibrated, but you don't know that answer until you actually keep track of those numbers. So I think it's a, a really good practice to track your, re the returns of the things that you rejected and also why and draw correlations between your filters and, and the eventual outcomes and using those as a way to adjust your process. So I, I, Annie Duke, in one of the um, sessions that we had with her, she mentioned that maybe a good idea was to have like a parallel portfolio where you would actually put some money behind some of the things that you were rejecting. Maybe a very tiny amount, just a little bit, so that you made it real. And actually making it real then forced you to um, look at how things were playing out. Because um, sometimes like, you can have things on paper, but they are, they are much more difficult for you to actually, you're not that invested in the paper portfolio as you're invested in a, in a portfolio that actually has the backing of some funds after it. Um, but I, I just don't know how feasible that is to do in practice. Like, yeah, I'm going to have like this dark portfolio of very small positions to see what, how they play out. Yeah, it's tough because uh, you want to, I and mean, we all only have so much time in the day, right? We only have so much bandwidth of research time that we can dedicate to this. So you want to get the most out of your time. And I wonder sometimes about some of these small tracking positions, whether they serve more as a distraction and keeping you from really understanding the big bet that you're making better. Uh, I, I like the idea. And I do agree that like having that little bit of skin in the game definitely makes you more of sure. a interested party but it can kind of go probably too far and you end up with you know a thousand things that you're trying to track and meanwhile you know the big eggs in the basket you're not minding those very well because you're worried about these other little things and like something bad can happen to that and that's going to be much more material to your outcome right yeah what you want to do is untangle what you knew at the time and the decision that you made and then 
you know, how it played out eventually and what was it, if anything, that you missed and then trying to figure out, could you have known that ahead of time? Had you done something a little different for next time? And yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's very, it's so easy to forget what you knew at that time when you were making the decision, your brain will misremember. You yeah. will rewrite the story of what you knew and what was available to you at that time. And it, it'll make things, your brain is always trying to tell the story of why something happened, right? Like we are wired to yeah. just create stories. And so, and we will misremember what the story was readily if it, if it helps us. And especially if it protects your ego, right? Like that is where your brain will really yeah, yeah. work double time is to protect your ego and your identity. So having it written down somewhere, what you were thinking, what was available as the information, and then working backwards later to see, well, could we have done anything better during that time? I think can't help but make you a much better decision maker. Yeah, I think that the, um, the, the other thing that it's maybe important not to miss, and it's easy to me sometimes, is that a lot of the decisions that you're making at the moment are driven by the context of the decision. What's happening right now, not only, not only the, the, the one thing that you're studying or analyzing, but the context of that in, in terms of the world. And sometimes looking at those things many years after that, it's very easy to kind of miss what the context of the situation was, especially when you are not dealing with very big events. It's very easy to go back in time and think where you were in 9-11 or when this other major event happened. But when it's just like, 14th of September, 2014, and we're making a decision about buying or selling X company, like who knows what was happening that day and how, how what was happening in that moment affected that decision. Um, we, we, we are coming to, a, to an end of, to, of our session, uh, Jake, and we have always um, asked two questions for our guests. Um, and the first question is about decision-making. And um, we have asked if, if, if you can provide us with an example of a decision that you made or saw others make, which ended in a bad outcome. And can you identify whether this was because of bad luck or a bad process? Yeah, I'll, I'll share a personal mistake that I made. And I, I guess Juan, you're trying to make me cry this morning, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this so company that- Everyone is crying. I know, that's a good point. Um, so this company that I owned for a, a long time and, it was closely held by, by management. They were big owners, so they held most of the cards. And in March of, of this year, 2020, uh, they repriced their options at an incredibly low number. And of course, you know, it, it went back up after that. And so they, there was an incredible amount of value stripped out for all the other remaining shareholders by management. And, oh man, I was so mad about it. Uh, I just felt like I was getting stolen from, right? And I, I went back and thought about it. And I, the problem that the real, the mistake that I made was one, there were little red flags along the way before that, that I probably should have recognized and maybe even anticipated that that was a, a potential thing that could happen. The other thing was I didn't sell right away in March. I was mad. <laughs> I, will, I should have probably, uh, but I didn't because there was this little part of me that was greedy about like, this is like the worst time to be selling this company, right? Like it is so beat up at the moment. Um, you know, this is like peak pessimism. It, it's travel related stock. So it's like, there's the worst time to sell it. Uh, so I didn't sell it. And this was where my process was sloppy because 
I should have had pre-programmed that man overboard moment. Like if the company does this to you, you should sell right away and don't ask any more questions because who knows how many other million little ways that they are getting over on you if this is what they're going to do publicly to get over on you, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so there's this idea called like a Ulysses contract. And Ulysses was the, uh, was a Greek, or I think it's a Greek mythology character who tied himself to the mast of the ship that he was sailing as they went past the sirens uh, so that he wouldn't be able to steer the boat into the rocks, right? To go see the sirens. Their, their singing was that alluring, right? So uh, the idea is like, I should have had a Ulysses contract with myself that said, if management ever does this to you, you sell right away, you get out and that's that. And, and it's the, you know, I'm pre-programming it before, while I'm calm, I'm not pissed off in the middle of it happening to me and then making the decision, right? Um, so that was a mistake that I've recently made. Uh, and you would think I've, you'd thought I'd already made all the mistakes to be made in this business at this point, but uh, apparently I'm learning new ones still all the time. Uh, but <laughs> so that was one for me personally. So that's very interesting. Have, have you uh, implemented the Ulysses contract uh, before, before that? Or is this, um, this the, the concept uh, came to you after this specific uh, experience? Uh, well, you know, I kind of have to profess my own stupidity here because I've, I've known about the Ulysses contract for <laughs> plenty of time and I haven't really used it yet in a, in a real yeah, way. We, because we, we go back to the, the, how difficult it is to execute and implement many of the things that we know that are, we're supposed to be doing. Exactly. I, uh, <laughs> I knew I was supposed to go to the gym. I just forgot to go. I didn't go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and our last question is we, we are, um, we, we love to read in the value team and we're always asking people to recommend us with some, uh, good book ideas. Uh, we know that you read a lot and, and so we are very keen to hearing from you some, some recommendations. Sure. I've got a couple for you. Uh, the first one is called Nature of Value by Nick Gogarty. And, you know, you, being as much as I uh, draw from the world of biology, like obviously this was like right on the nose for me because it takes, it takes a lot of ideas from biology and shows how value investing is uh, simpatico with, with nature. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great confirmation bias for someone like me uh, to read things like ideas in there as well. And Nick is a great guy. So uh, that's number one. Number two is this book called Non-Zero by Robert Wright. And another book by him that's great is called Why Buddhism is True, but I'll, I'll save that one. Um, this this Non-Zero, it, it basically argues that the biological and cultural progress are driven by increasing non-zero sumness. So, you know, creating new interactions and playing win-win cooperative games and not non-zero or not zero sum, you know, win-lose games has been what has led to both biological and cultural progress. Uh, so that one is, you know, it's, it's definitely a little bit of a deeper dive when you go all the way from, you know, from eukaryotic cells cooperating uh, all the way up through, <laughs> you know, win-win of businesses uh, and, and culture. But, I enjoyed that one a lot. Uh, and then the last one, and this is like, 
you're going to say, yeah, Jake, no, duh, that's a good one. Uh, but it's the essays of Warren Buffett. I went back and reread it here recently, like in the last month, and I've probably read it 20 times now. And what's amazing about it is that he is so careful with his word choices and there's so much nuance that I somehow still keep missing and I keep coming back and finding new nuance. And it, it's so good. Like if you could only read one book on business, that's probably the best one. Um, what I find really interesting is to see highlights that I've done at different points in my life while reading that same book. And it's almost like this self Rorschach test of like, what did I think was important at that time? Like what resonated with me uh, and how I've changed over the years of reading that book, even though the words haven't changed. Uh, it's, it's an incredible experience to just keep reading it over and over again. Oh, thank you very much. That was very generous. Jake, it was a pleasure having you uh, with us and thank you very much for your time. And it was really, really, really good. Thanks Juan, I really appreciate you having me on. And um, I think uh, you guys are doing a great service with this. So keep it up. Yeah, thank you very much for the badges. Yeah.